Welcome to the Does It Work podcast by Biomarker Labs, where you can find wellness without the woo. There's an alligator coming down. What's up? Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I am today joined by Lindsay McCleary. He is a photojournalist, a writer, author, speaker, uh, editor, all around amazing guy. And today we're going to talk about some pretty heavy stuff uh, that I think you'll find pretty interesting and potentially useful. So Lindsay, thanks so much for coming on. We met on Tinder a year and a half ago. Yeah, it might actually be longer than that. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A couple years ago, I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like a pretty uh, common way for you to make connections that are lasting, which is unusual for the Tinder sphere. Yeah, well, I think what you do is you go at it uh, just imagining that you're going to be somebody's friend uh, and then uh, and then everything else is follows there. I actually have more friends that I've met via Tinder than I have probably partners that I've met via Tinder, but yeah. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah, um, it's been wonderful to know you for this. I, I met you like right after I moved to SF, and so mm-hmm. you're like one of my first friends. Yeah, still live in the Noe Valley, as I recall. Yeah, <laughs> Noe. Okay, so um, today I wanted to speak to you about your history um, regarding opiate addiction. This is mm-hmm. something that you told me, you know, you're pretty open about, and mm-hmm. I really respect and admire that. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the things that you've learned about how to manage your recovery um, and maybe how that can apply to people who are also in recovery or maybe just like kind of applicable life skills. I know I am somewhat familiar with some of the recovery, um, you know, 12 step recovery stuff. And a lot of it is just very useful life advice that anyone really could benefit Mm -hmm. from. Um, But yeah, I also, the other thing that I really like about your story and uh, we'll get into it um, is that I feel like a lot of people have this, image of what an addict looks like or an addict comes from how they first start using mm-hmm. um and in my experience addiction can start with anyone it can start anywhere um it can be you know you are uh, an engineer for a you know you're a contractor you've got a security clearance you can start using meth you know you can be uh in your case a tenure track or a um, phd candidate um starting to use opiates like it's it's cuts across uh job titles race lines class lines everything um but anyway yeah so um Um, yeah the thing is is that i actually so i was a a graduate student at stanford and i was uh an oxycontin and other opiate addict i actually managed to get uh i was getting morphine from uh, across the border from crooked doctors in Tijuana. But at the same time that I was an opiate addict and a graduate student at Stanford, I was also a straight A student. Um, So I was on my way to getting a PhD uh, at the same time as being an opiate addict. I actually had to drop out of graduate school after I quit because I couldn't handle the stress without the use of drugs. I was a pretty... I don't know if that's the typical um, the typical path for an opiate addict. Um, definitely for those who like are doing like pharmaceutical grade, you know, pharmaceutical op- uh, opiates. Um, but uh, one of the people who actually I had a connection with when I was was an addict 
was actually a math graduate student, math PhD student. That's who I was buying my OxyContin from, was a math graduate student at Berkeley. And so you kind of see this strange um, correspondence sometimes with very, very high achieving intellectuals and academics and either drug or alcohol addiction, right? And I'm gonna call it not alcoholism, but alcohol addiction, right? Um, and uh, so that's one of the things, at least that's who I had exposure to. At the same time, I was mixing with people who were buying uh, drugs in the mission. So that would be, you know, it, balloons, right? Um, balloons that you would see, uh, little balloons of, of heroin that you would actually could buy in the mission at this time. I don't know if you could still buy them in the mission because the mission's been, become a different place. This was about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's, there's a very interesting wide spectrum of uh, drug addicts, especially here in the Bay Area. And I think it's important for people to realize this, if nothing else, because I think a lot of people say, you know, my son is a straight A student in, in grad school, like, mm -hmm. he would never be in this mm -hmm. position, like this would never happen to our family, like this would never happen to me. And the reality is quite the opposite, that it can happen to anyone at any time. And so when you're thinking about how do we deal with this problem and you're considering a more punitive um, versus rehabilitative uh, mm. approach, like knowing that, you know, we are all in this together and this could happen to anyone at any time, I think is an important thing to keep in mind. Um, and um, yeah, we thought we can't really draw this huge distinction between you know you have your you have your crack addict and your cocaine addict and then you have your alcoholic and your drug addict we have, we're talking about different kinds of addictions to different kinds of substances one of the highest rates of alcoholism also drug use uh, that exists exists amongst corporate lawyers um, alcoholism is just rampant and i i feel like that's not a matter of, uh, of you know, it's, it's maybe a matter of class, it might be a matter of money, it might be a matter of access, but we see addiction kind of spread out around, along the socio-ecological, or socio-political, socio sociological spectrum, yeah. No, well, no. yeah, and when you have access to resources, you're almost, you can maintain a level of, of drug use or abuse um, that other people can't because they don't have that safety net of money and education and connections. You know, if you're a opiate addict and you have money, mm -hmm. then you can be an opiate addict for a really long time. Um, mm -hmm. If you're an opiate addict and you don't have money, that could be a lot shorter because of the quality of drugs that you're going to have access to, the knowledge of what you're taking. Um, and so all these are important things to keep in mind. Um, so how did you, you went from, so, so did you start using recreationally or did you have like some, uh, like an injury where you had to take them or what happened there? I mean, it's an interesting thing. My, both my parents, uh, at one time or another were heroin addicts. And, uh, when I was young, I did get prescribed Vicodin. I remember being 16 years old and really just absolutely loving it. Um, just, I was, I think I broke my ankle and I had a skateboard injury. Um, then it really actually started with probably 
late college, early graduate school, I kind of noticed that I was more productive. Um, uh, I was more productive on a kind of mixture of lots of coffee or mild amphetamines. You know, I would just take prescription amphetamines and then I would also take uh, opiates. And this was just intermittent, right? It wasn't um, constant. And I would just, you know, be like, all right, I have a paper to do or papers to grade. Wouldn't th this be a little bit more interesting on just a little bit of Adderall, uh, a little bit of whiskey and, you know, some prescription opiates that I would ho hook up from somewhere. And at the time, this is the beginning of at the time, not a lot of people knew what OxyContin was, um, but this is at a time when a lot of doctors were prescribing a lot of OxyContin. This was like 2003, 2004. And at the same time, um, I was in an interesting position because I had uh, come from like a lower, lower income, um, like group of people. Like I grew up around a lot of people who were essentially like, I guess you could call it like the criminal element, right? And so I knew how to score stronger opiates. Um, and so because I was both a graduate student, but at the same time, I had this whole group of friends who was, uh, who knew how to smuggle drugs and knew how to score drugs and knew, knew crooked pharmacists and stuff like that, I had a great deal of access. Um, and at first it was actually, I just used them as kind of a performance enhancer. Um, it eventually, uh, around probably around 24, 25, then it, it proceeded to like everyday use. For one thing, uh, tramadol was just, uh, tramadol, which is an atypical, what is it called? Uh, tramadol is not a typical opioid it's a synthetic opioid and it only hits certain opiate receptors but tramadol was always available and so i didn't even have to worry about going out to to find oxycontin or to find morphine or to find anything else um so yeah it's probably around 24 25 that i really started using heavily and um tell me about how how you got clean and um, then like how you've maintained that recovery? I mean, so the, the, the uh, first time that I got clean off of opiates, uh, and I say the first time I got clean off of opiates because eventually I ended up getting clean off of alcohol. I ended up quitting booze. But the first time I got clean off of opiates, I did go through... Uh, kind of the beginning of Narcotics Anonymous. Um, I actually met, I was friends with some people in the punk rock scene. Uh, there was a, a guy I knew um, from my youth whose name was Paul Rossler. He was the keyboardist for an old LA punk rock band called The Screamers. And uh, I called him up. I knew he was clean. And I said, you know, I need to get clean off of, off of drugs. And he, you know, kind of took me under his wing. He took me to meetings and then, you know, we just, we just spent a lot of time together. And uh, that was it. Um, I'd kicked a whole bunch of times before and kicking at that point wasn't the huge problem. The huge problem was kind of staying clean. 
Um, as I said, eventually I dropped out of graduate school. I actually dropped out of graduate school after I got clean. And this is going to be something that's probably going to be a, a repeating theme is that um, I dropped out of graduate school because high stress situations are what lead to relapse. Um, essentially, an addict can't actually probably uh, stay sober unless they learn some sort of stress management skills, right? Stress management comes before, uh, stress management comes before like, stress management skills are what addicts lack. That's what keeps you going back to drugs, right? Um, yeah, so uh, the point was that I dropped out of graduate school and I came and I moved back up here to the Bay Area. Nice thing about moving back up to the Bay Area I was kind of away from a lot of the stressors that you know put me in a place where I wanted to uh, use drugs. Um, I haven't stuck with the Narcotics Anonymous program. Uh, I have some feelings about uh, the scientific and the overall efficacy of uh, uh, 12-step programs. I think that 12-step programs are helpful in helping a lot of addicts and alcoholics stay clean, but I think that they're helpful for interesting reasons, which is it has to do with a, a larger social support. Um, uh, and I think there are other avenues of recovery. Certainly. I think that social support is extremely important. Um, you know, Dr. Carl Hart has some really interesting research on rats and cocaine and finding that when you put a rat in a lonely, dirty cage by itself, like it will become, you know, addicted to cocaine. But when you provide a rat with socialization and a clean, fun, engaging environment, the cocaine is certain it's the same cocaine, but it's a lot less interesting to the rat. Um, and I think that you can see that with humans as well. When you have other things to engage in, you're a lot less pulled to the more, you know, self-destructive uh, behaviors. But I want to talk about your latest, you've had a lot of career changes lately. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how, how did your stress management or lack thereof play into your latest relapse? Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of, actually, the most recent relapse, uh, uh, which was just a very small blip, was actually because I was taking something that I thought was an opiate, or, or didn't know was an opiate, and then found out later that it had opiate properties. And by the time that I, I started taking it, um, I realized very quickly that it was actually, I was actually very, very, I was addicted to it. Right. Um, and as soon as that happened, I actually made a plan with my doctor uh, and my psychiatrist and my therapist to get off it as quickly as possible. Um, it was initially just for pain. I, one of the things is that uh, I was having a lot of difficulties with pain management. I wasn't taking a lot of the self-care opportunities that I really, really wanted to. Uh, one of the interesting things is that you, <laughs> what I've discovered about myself anyways, is that like you have to, I, ha I mean, I have to uh, exercise, meditate, keep a good diet, get a lot of sleep or else I'm gonna be a miserable person. And if I'm a miserable person, I'm gonna find other avenues of taking care of myself, bad ones to be really, really tempting. 
um, which has like really great effects because like I swear to God my biceps never look better. The <laughs> uh, like and you know I'm looking at but but I keep on forgetting like you know I'm not doing this to look good. I'm, I'm doing this because I'm I'm trying to keep myself sober and I'm trying to keep myself happy. Right, and the two go hand in hand. So tell me, okay, so you need to exercise, meditate. What else? Yeah, exercise, meditate, good diet, good rest. Actually, my therapist, my therapist says this thing. She goes, she goes, uh, look, I'm not saying that all of the problems that we're going to psychiatrists for would be solved if we did these five things, but I'd say about 80% of people in the United States right now currently seeking whatever type of mental health care would probably not need it if they did these five things. Uh, good diet, plenty of exercise, some sort of self-care regimen, whether it be meditation or going for a walk or just smelling flowers. Uh, uh plenty of sleep and a gratitude practice five things right being grateful for things in your life getting plenty of sleep doing something that calms you down or makes you happy getting exercise and having a good diet if everybody did like five of those things like 80 80 percent of the mental health care problems that we deal with would be gone and it's so interesting working in the supplement space because, you know, I've been reading about um, nootropics and it's kind of one of those things where it's like, this is not, if you're, if you've already got those five things handled, mm -hmm. it'll give you a little bit of a leg up, but yeah, it won't yeah. have any impact relative to those five things. Like those, yeah. any one of those five things is going to have a much bigger impact than any pill or supplement you could take. Yeah, I, but also the thing about it is, I know one. I'll, I can even grab some of the the uh, the supplements that I take. Please but, do. Uh, well, what? Please do. See? I'd love to know. Yeah. Okay, one second. Your internet connection is becoming a. Uh, so I and by the way, this is kind of expensive, and I'll just tell you the active ingredient in it, uh, and then you don't have to take the whole stack. But it's it's this right here. It's like fifty dollars for like a hundred pills, but it, it's it's been pretty helpful. Um, but the active ingredient is uh, I forget what the first two things are, but it's NALT and it's it's basically L-tyrosine, right? So a lot of people take GABA, but they don't they forget that GABA is there's there's certain chemicals which are precursors to GABA, and L-tyrosine is one of them. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm not a fucking doctor, but... Uh, but you almost were. <laughs> what? I said, but you almost were. Sorry, mm -hmm. bad joke. What'd you say? I said you almost were. It's a bad yeah. PhD joke. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, not, yeah I'm not a doctor, but, but I do know that, that one of the, the things that people forget is that there's certain nutritional, you know, whatever the, I, I guess minerals whatever they are substances that are precursors to the creation of GABA in your neurotransmitters well actually no technically GABA exists in your synaptic gaps I actually did take a couple of semesters of uh of neurobiology well I took biology 
and then I took chemistry, and then I took neurobiology. This is when I was at Berkeley. I was thinking of becoming a psychologist, oddly enough. But yeah, so GABA exists in your synaptic gaps between your neurotransmitters. Um, it is one of the things that slows down or puts a break on your neurotransmitters from constantly firing. Now, it turns out that what anxiety is, a lot of anxiety exists in your nervous system, and it's about you know your neurotransmitters constantly firing. GABA kind of puts the brakes on that. Um, if you don't have enough GABA in your system, you're gonna be a kind of jumpy, kind of anxious person. Um, that's why one of the things they give uh, addicts and alcoholics in recovery is gabapentin, right? Um, but, uh, which causes, I believe, uh, I don't think it's, it might inhibit GABA reuptake. I don't know, we'd have to talk to somebody who works in psychopharmacology, but, I take those supplements partially because I'm trying to be less anxious, which, which is one of the things that, that stops you from relapsing. But, oh yeah, I totally went on a, on a um, digression. The point is you need lots of sleep because that's when GABA is synthesized, right? And one thing we know about everybody in the working world and a lot of the people taking these nootropics uh, is that how you pronounce it? I'm not sure. I should know. I've heard it a lot of different ways. But um, one of the things we know about these people is they're not getting enough sleep. You need to get enough sleep for your brain to go ahead and resynthesize a lot of the neurotransmitters that you need in order to be a functional person. And so, yeah, supplements are great, but also get enough sleep, right? Well, and anxiety is a real bitch like that because you don't get enough sleep for whatever reason, and then you lay down, and then you get anxious about it, and then you lay down, and you're not asleep, and you know you should be because you've got to make up for it, and you know your alarm clock's going to go off in seven hours, and then six hours, and then you're like, shit, and you know, an anxious mind is not primed for sleep, and so have you yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I also take, um, I also take restful sleep. This is, um, and I, 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 by the way, I'm not paid by these people. I'm just showing people what I take. Uh, I also take this one. I partially like this one because it kind of tastes like blackberries. Um, and it looks a little bit like blackberries too. But uh, yeah, so I, I also take, uh, uh, this is melatonin and L-theanine. Uh, so it's, I take melatonin and I take it like, like you're supposed to, which is like an, an hour before you want to fall asleep. Because people often, I've been, read a couple articles on this, people take melatonin uh, like at three in the morning and then they're resetting their whole bodily clock to fall asleep at three in the morning. You take it the same time every night when you, an hour before you'd ideally want to fall asleep, right? Um, and I fall asleep pretty easily. I just don't stay asleep. Yeah, I found that supplements, especially over-the-counter supplements um, like melatonin or, you know, dream water or whatever, they work pretty well to get me asleep, which is usually my problem. But I wake up earlier than I would either on a prescription sleep aid or unaided. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you find that to be the case? Um, yeah, I mean, I've always, I've always had, uh, what's called like something like early onset insomnia. I actually have no, pro I've never had any problem falling asleep, mm -hmm. especially because I meditate every morning and meditation really helps you know how to get to sleep because you can calm down your mind. 
I just wake up at like often at like three or four in the morning. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, prescription sleep aids, man. It depends on what prescription sleep aid you're taking. Trazodone is not a bad one. Um, but people out there taking what, <laughs> so we just called them benzos on the street, but benzodiazepines, um, are brutal. Um, and they're hell to get off of, you know, your, your Xanax in the old days, it was Valium. I don't know if Secanol, so no, Secanol was barbiturate. I know I always used to get really interested in the drugs that I was taking when I was a drug addict. I'd like to look, when, especially once Wikipedia came around, <laughs> knowing a little bit of chemistry and biology, I, I, I would go on Wikipedia and like really research these things. But like benzodiazepines are, are a bitch. Yeah. I, and I don't find them super helpful for sleep. For me personally, like I'll take a Xanax and I'll feel chilled out, but I'm not sleepy. Um, I really like Ambien and um, Lunesta, but yeah. they stop working very quickly. So it's for that and health reasons, it's not a long-term solution. It's like a once a week situation. I, I'll let you know, I have never blacked out as many times as I did on benzodiazepines and alcohol, which yeah. you should never, ever do, right? Never, <laughs> but straight up, just like entire periods of a night would disappear, right? Um, and, you know, uh, man, I think I remember one time I was in a relationship and a girl was just making out with me. It was not my girlfriend. I, I think I was... I don't think I, luckily I was never really monogamous with any, most of my partners, but I don't, didn't plan on that happening, right? And anyways, long story short, yeah, watch out for, watch out for Xanax and booze, right? Not a good combo. Not a horrible combo. Do not. Horrible combo. Ask Roseanne Barr that one, right? Like, <laughs> there's been a lot of bad tweets made because of people with Xana with taking Xanax on top of booze, right? Ambien and booze is also a very bad idea. Any, and this is this is something that I really like. I'm not approved when it comes to drugs by any stretch of the imagination, but do not mix downers and downers. Like, <laughs> hey, don't fuck with downers. You know, be very yeah. careful with downers and do not mix them. Yeah, bad don't, actually, don't, don't mix downers. And uh, the problem is mixing drugs in general uh, is problematic. I, um, uh, I, a friend of mine died when I was, and so being a drug addict, not just because the thing about drug addiction is that when you know, like upper class drug addicts, like my mom, my mom just had a Valium prescription like her entire life and just smoked weed and took Valium. Uh, she did get addicted to heroin, but most of her life, she was just one of those upper middle-class drug addicts. You know, you don't hear them dying as often. Now they are actually with the opiate ep epidemic, but you know a lot of people that die when you're a drug addict. And a lot of people I've known have, dried, have died from cocaine, uh, plus a, a benzo, right? So essentially, you do too much blow, you can't get to sleep, and so you take, um, what was the, Ambien or something like that, and then you just don't wake up. Heart stops. Yeah. And, and in two of the cases that this happened, 
uh, it was the girlfriend of the person who died, who basically, they just woke up next to a corpse. Yeah, it's rough. How does that work, like, physiologically? So was it the cocaine that caused the heart problems and then the um, Ambien, like, made them, like, unaware that they were having heart problems? Or do you know anything more about this? Um, I don't actually know that much about what happens physiologically. I do know that there is a kind of feedback system that sends messages to your heart to keep beating. And one of the things about benzos is that they lower the rate of uh, the, your breathing rate, which means not a lot, not a l less oxygen is going into your bloodstream, and your pulse is supposed. Your your I think it your pulse is supposed to kind of slow down. But another one is uh is but cocaine is a vaso uh, dilator. I think it's a vasodilator. No, no, it's a vasoconstrictor. Sorry, it 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 makes your 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 arteries a lot smaller, right? Um, so more blood should be pumping through, and I think at some point the feedback between the two just kind of short circuits your heart and it just starts stops pumping. Mm. That's crazy. That's such a common thing to do, and I had no idea that. I mean, obviously, like. He, it's a uh, Heath Ledger, I believe, died this way. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a there's a good number of people who actually die. Uh, John Belushi died from speedballing, right? Um, there's a good number of people who die by mixing uppers and downers, right? Mm. Very scary. Mm -hmm. <sighs> okay, so um, what else should people know about addiction and? what can people who don't necessarily have substance use problems that they're aware of um, at least or have acknowledged um, you know what would you like them to know and what can they learn from your experience hmm. i mean a lot of it is summarized in this uh really really great book called, i believe it's called in the realm of the hungry ghosts by a guy named uh, gabor mate Essentially, um, addiction is a kind of, you know, it's, I, the way that Gabor Mate looks at it is addiction is a kind of subset of compulsive behavior. Um, if your cats get stressed out, they'll start licking themselves compulsively because that is a means of stress release. Like cats, when they do self-grooming, that's a, a means of stress reduction. Um, some people, as a means of stress reduction, uh, you know, since Amazon Prime came to be a thing, you know, they get, you get, they get this, these little bits of stress reduction from the chemicals that are released every time they make a purchase. Uh, for some people, it's food, right? Um, alcohol and drugs are mostly a form of stress reduction. They're not a healthy form of stress reduction. So the, the trick here is to kind of look at, I mean, if you want to look to see the kinds of people who get addicted, they're highly stressed people. And if there's one thing I want to say is that it's, it's really not alcohol and drugs that are, alcohol and drugs are the killer, but it's stress and how we deal with stress that is the big problem here. 
um, it's a mental health crisis for sure, but it's a mental health crisis created by a, a group of people who feel increasingly stressed out and increasingly alienated. Uh, they can't go to family and friends for, for comfort or support. And because of that kind of dual problem of alienation and stress, you have a perfect mixing pot for addiction. And it really can happen. And that's why to some extent, while some people have a genetic predisposition, which makes it more likely to happen to them, um, it still is the case that a lot of people are perfectly set up for an addiction just by looking at their lives and realizing I'm, I'm socially isolated and I'm stressed out. Um, you want to you want to avoid addiction. Um, find ways to reduce stress. Stay close to people near you. Um, have good support networks and take your mental health seriously. I think that's really really good advice. I think the social isolation is. I mean, it's a it's a mental health emergency and it's a physical health emergency. It's as social isolation is empirically shown to be as bad for you as smoking cigarettes when it mm -hmm. comes to your physical health. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is extremely stigmatized. You know, the last thing you want if you want to be popular is to admit you're lonely. Mm -hmm. um, it's very stigmatized. It's very embarrassing. It's very underappreciated. People don't look around their lives and, and realize like I'm lonely and I need you know, either more interaction or a different kind of interaction. But I think it's true. I think a lot of us are lonely and the way our society is set up, like from commuting by car to the single family home, to the fact that, you know, jobs are moving away from suburbs and from, um, you know, rural areas towards cities. So you've got, you know, the people who stay where they grew up have that social support system of their families but often don't have the economic opportunities that they need to feel fully integrated into society. And then the people who move and have the economic opportunities often have, you know, small kind of uh, groups of friends that are not particularly well integrated into your life. It's like, if you're doing fine economically, you know, you're making enough money, you often don't have the need um, the pressing like survival need that people once had to like get to know your neighbors and to form those deep bonds. So how would you suggest, like how have you kind of worked toward, you know, combating loneliness in your life? Yeah. Well, we use Tinder, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, combating loneliness in my life. Well, I just have a, pretty large well I try to I try to have a large family right um by a family I mean chosen family um not like a uh, my biological family my biological family is pretty sparse right um but actually that's that's the ongoing struggle that's the ongoing struggle especially here where I live in San Francisco you know everybody is so busy it's not a, the kind of place where, you know, we live in these communities where we don't know our neighbors. Um, uh, you just try to become parts of scenes, you know, volunteer places. And most people eventually find some sort of social belonging with the people whom they work with, right? 
one of the difficult things is people don't, it's not necessarily alcoholic people who become, you know, people with an addiction to alcohol who become unemployed. It's often unemployed people who get an addiction to alcohol because they don't have anything to wake up for in the morning. They don't have a group of people in their lives. It's, it's so, uh, yeah, that's, that's actually, that question is a pretty, <laughs> how do I do it? I actually, no, man. I, one of my better friends is my yoga teacher. <laughs> Seriously, I know more about his relationships than I know about the relation. And it's because I see, unlike my friends, I see my yoga teacher like once, twice a week. So I know how his love life is going. Uh, while my friends, I, you know, I, some of them I haven't spoken to in a month, right? So maybe you find yourself a good yoga teacher. <laughs> We're closer with our yoga teachers than we are with our friends in the city. It is. It's, it's rough. Everyone's going hard after something or several things. And so. Yeah, um, we don't actually even, we'll take time out of our, our schedules to schedule yoga, but we won't take time out of our schedules to schedule our friends. Yeah. I mean, this is just a fact about like urban life living in San Francisco, living in the Bay Area. You know, I haven't spoken to my friend in three months, but I do Pilates with the same person several times a week. Mm -hmm. No, and it's super interesting. I think that's something that people don't appreciate enough is that kind of random, unstructured bumping into people. It's why I think people who have kids, you know, you just see the person in the car line to pick up your kids. You see them at the PTA meeting, like you see them when you're volunteering to help your kid with this or that. And um, Yeah, actually, I'm thinking about either volunteering with, do you remember what the name of the place is? It's, a, it's an organization that works with sex workers in... Uh, Swap? City. Might be. Um, so I'm thinking of volunteering with them, and I'm actually thinking of starting to volunteer at a punk record store in the mission um and the reason why is because through volunteering you just get good social connections right you get connected to your community you start seeing the same people every day when i lived in the east bay i would run into people when i lived in berkeley um i moved to san francisco that stopped happening as much you didn't just see just run into people the same kind of way and i mean in la it's just impossible yeah, it's when I moved to SF, I immediately joined ESF, EMB, us in my backyard, the pro housing group. And it was incredibly useful for um, those kinds of, uh, you know, to meet a lot of people who have, you know, something similar in common with and to see them every week. And, and that was really wonderful. And now I'm part of a, you know, a, a different group. And, and that's been, I, and I'm still a little bit a part of EMB as well. And so, the, the clubs are really useful. I think the volunteering is kind of the next step where I need to figure out, okay, like, you know, what's, what's the work I'm going to put forward. So it's not just, it's a, it's a different kind of connection when you're, when you're building and doing alongside people versus just like partying and hanging out. Sex workers help out sex workers. Cause here's the interesting thing. Um, if we're going to, I'm going to say this off the cuff, even though we're, we're recording, um, you know, uh, if you take a look at political hypocrisy, uh, the Democratic Party very much wants women to be able to do whatever they want with their bodies unless it's sell it for sex, right? Or sell it. So w women have the right to their bodies unless they do 
So one of the things is that sex workers are not being protected by either political direction, right? That's actually, I think we talked about this once and that's the reason, that was actually the impetus between me wanting to go and volunteer to, to work with sex workers is because they're not getting protections, political protections from either political party. They are the true, you know, um, unhelped group of people and in, in in not just this city, but most cities, right? Well, um, and they're also, I think, when it comes to um, property rights and civil liberties, and this is not my argument, but, um, you know, they're, they're the canaries in the coal mine. You know, mm -hmm. it's the sex workers that lose first, but mm -hmm. it doesn't just, what, what impacts sex workers doesn't just impact sex workers. You see that with SOS, SESTA and FOSTA, you know, um, they're obviously the most impacted by losing their ability to legally advertise online. Um, but we're seeing all kinds of people get censored for all kinds of um, content as a result of this kind of anti-sex worker legislation. Yeah, so. first it was Boston and Sesta, and then it then it was um then it was Tumblr, right? right. Tumblr, yeah, right. And then all of a sudden, Tumblr is is very very. Uh, but and also to get back to the topic of you know drug addiction and self care, you know a lot of the places where you see street prostitution is also a lot of the places where you see needle use. Absolutely. Uh, at least in it, it in it, uh, that's anecdotal a little bit, by the way, but. I've lived in a couple major cities and in Los Angeles, it's Hollywood. Here's the tenderloin. And the, often that's what you, you, you see. Right. Um, and so, yeah, what, working with those kinds of people and being parts of those kinds of communities is, is an important thing. It's, I actually think it's probably more important for addicts to be around people who are actively using, because then they get a chance to be a part of those communities. And if you're not helping people recover, then you oftentimes can forget what it's like to be in recovery, right? If you're not actively being around, because most people I know who relapse, they, they relapse when they're socially isolated, if not when they're spending time helping other addicts, right? Yeah, it goes back to that. Are you integrated? Or do you feel necessary? You know, do you feel... Do you feel connected? I think I actually knew a guy who, um, this was amazing. It, he was, uh, he was a drug addict, been clean for like heroin addict, been clean for like 10 years. He'd done the animation on nightmare before Christmas and they'd sent like the entire office to Amsterdam or something like that. And he was just in his hotel room had just was totally flush with catch, top of his career, and that's when he decided to go, start going out and using. Right, that and so that and he he was in Amsterdam of all places, and he knew where to find it. Um, so uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. It, you, it wasn't it wasn't when he was hanging out in Hollywood amongst lots of junkies. It was when he was at the top of his career that he actually just he ended up relapsing. All the money in the world, all the success will never replace managing your stress and being connected to other humans. Absolutely. With that, thank you so much for coming on. I really, this is such a intense stigmatized topic. And so to have 
you come on and be open about your struggles is uh, really admirable and I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really hope that what I said can help. No doubt. All right. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks for tuning in to the Does It Work podcast by Biomarker Labs. For links, show notes, and more, check out biomarker.io slash podcast.